I'm, I'm a little beat. So you'll have to put up with a tired Jonathan tonight. <clears throat> um, it's good to be with you all. Um, this is RUF. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, like I said, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus minister here. Um, my wife is Caroline in the back. She's the cutest pregnant woman you'll ever see in your life. Um, so uh, we've got a, she and I, are, we're expecting a baby in, what is it, babe? Six weeks tomorrow? Yeah, six weeks tomorrow. So uh, in seven weeks, if I look really tired, you'll know why. <laughs> um, so again, welcome to RUF. Uh, what is RUF? We're a Christian ministry on campus. We try to make a big campus feel a little smaller with community. We try to do that in different ways. Large group is one of the ways we do that, but we also do lots of small groups. I really encourage you um, to get involved with a small group if you can find the time. Uh, co-ed Bible study is open to everyone. There's a bunch of other ones that are specific to um, particular uh, you know, genders or places in college. Um, I'll be leading one on Thursday uh, That's gonna, uh, during lunch. It's the Hot Topics. We're going to look at hot topics in faith and um, the world we live in today. So um, if you have a hot topic that you're like, I'm going to stump Jonathan with that one, one, bring it. Two, <laughs> um, two bring it up. Um, so I really encourage you to get lunch, meet us there. Um, I'll bring some hot topics, and we'll talk through them. Um, so that would be good. I also meet with people one-on-one and do coffee. We just hang out a lot of the time. Um, or we talk about life and faith and everything that's on your mind, um, things that's in the scripture, in the word of God, and see how they intersect. So if that's something you would be interested in doing, um, I'd love to get coffee with you, get to know you more, hear more about um, what brings you here tonight. And um, yeah, keep hanging out with us. You'll figure out why we're here. Um, we wanna, but we do want to serve you. Oh, and we also do a lot of fun stuff too along the way. Um, one other thing I wanted to say that I forgot to say in announcements, um, on Sunday afternoons, uh, we do this thing called college lunch. So I go to University Presbyterian Church, which is, um, tucked back that way just a little bit. It's, you can walking distance from campus, but the church every Sunday, um, hosts college students, um, in people's homes. Um, they, the, the, the church loves this campus and they want people to, um, feel like they're not stuck on a campus and eating cafeteria food all the time. So every Sunday, um, they bring students into the homes. They make a home-cooked meal. It's a lot of fun. So um, if you're interested in that, like the, join the Facebook group, and we post where that is every Sunday. So I encourage you to do that. One other thing, we, tank, we, sang, we sang my two favorite songs tonight, um, Psalm 130 and Jesus, I, My Cross, Are Taken. Um, so those songs minister to me. They also have, um, shall I say, archaic language. They have uh, words that we don't use today a lot. So um, we do that intentionally. We do that for a reason in RUF. We sing songs that push me at least. I hope they push you um, in worship to think about worship, not just as something that makes me feel good, but actually changes me in and while I'm singing. So a few questions about that. I have a blurb in your bulletins that's way too long for college students in the 21st century. Um, but if you want to read it, read it. We can talk about it. So um, take a look at that, and um, I encourage you to, if you get a chance, um, reflect on the words that we sing uh, in large group because they're, they're deep. Um, there's a lot of sub- substance in them. Um, so that is not why we're here for me to make announcements all night. Um, we are here to talk about Scripture. We're here to look and see what the Bible, um, God's Word, has to say about living in the world that we are in today, 21st century 
college students at New Mexico State. This semester, we are working through the book of Leviticus. And if you were here with us last week, I laid out a case for why I think Leviticus is an important book, a really good book for us to look at. And uh, so I'm not going to review that. If you're interested in hearing that, you can talk to me. Uh, I actually really am passionate about Leviticus, so you'll get a lot more than you bargain for. But um, one of the main things that we talked about last week is the reality that Leviticus, maybe some of you have read it, maybe some of you haven't, is a book, um, it's a book of law. It's a set of laws. You, you probably are familiar with that part. But it's a set of laws that are written to a particular set of people. It's a set of laws that are couched and set within a larger story. They're set within a larger story. And so if we're going to start thinking about a set of law, which we're going to do throughout the rest, of story, the rest of the semester, we first need to think about that story. We need to reflect on together the story that, is, that it's set in. So think of it this way. Um, how many of you have taken a political science class and read the Constitution? Yeah, most of you, right? And you've probably also read the Declaration of Independence. So the Constitution, it's like the legal backbone for our body, for our legal backbone for our political body, right? That it's, it's a document that's full of fairly technical um, legal language about uh, checks and balances and breaking up government and the Supreme Court, all that sort of thing. Um, and it's not exactly a stirring piece of rhetoric, if you will. Um, but... Converse that with the Declaration of Independence, right? Now that is rhetoric. That is rhetoric. We've all there's there's exciting stuff in there. I may have just broken this. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you, you've heard this before. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that's rhetoric, right? That just you hear that and you're like, yes. That's what I'm interested in being in that political body, right? It captures our imaginations. It gives us something to fight for. It even gives us an identity as a people, right? And, and so much of the American story is summed up in that sentence. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it captured the, the, the rebels in, in the Revolutionary War. They were like, yes, this is why we're rebelling because of this. We're declaring our independence. This is our identity. This is what we're going to do. So then they fight the war, and now they're like, now what? We've got to run a country. We've got this, this vision, this identity of being this people. We've got to run a country. So we've got to come up with a law system that's going to make this work, right? And so they write the Constitution. And so that's kind of what's happening in ancient Israel in what we're looking at in Leviticus. Leviticus is like their constitution. Leviticus is, here's how we're going to be the people of God. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks this semester looking at that constitution. But what I want to do tonight is look at the Declaration of Independence part for the people of Israel. I want to look at their identity and how that informs the rest of what they're looking at, uh, the rest of what they're um, the rest of the book that we're going to be studying. So look with me on your bulletin. and I'm going to read this piece of scripture and I'll make some comments on it. So uh, this is God's word from Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses, Moses went up to God. The Lord said to him out of the mountains, saying, The Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, 
Thus to you, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if indeed if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let me pray first real quick. Father in heaven, thank you for again the opportunity to come tonight from a very diverse set of backgrounds and um, academics, days and schedules, and to gather, to sing, to reflect on who we are on a campus, and more importantly, on you and your word. I pray that you would be with us these next minutes, that you would use me as you will, um, and that you would use my words to build your kingdom in the lives and hearts of our community in in this body here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so, like I've said, this is a story. It's a story of what is happening. And so, I just read a piece of that story. Verses 1 through 4, in particular, we're going to look at initially. And so, it's a story. Many of you probably know the story of what has happened in the lives of the ancient Israelites. Ancient Israel, this is the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people as they are today, had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Um, and and um, they were forced to do physical labor for the Egyptians. They had been compelled to build great buildings. Um, their, their babies were actually mass murdered in, in a giant infanticide. Um, they were forced to live outside of the town. They were, they were generally very oppressed. And earlier in this book that I just read in Exodus 1, it says, Egypt ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and make their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. So there's this people. And and again, what we're talking about is this actually happened in history. You can go back and look at historical documents and archaeology and see like this stuff happened. This is not just a story. So there was a real people of Israel who were enslaved. And then all of a sudden, the God of the Bible here, it says, rescues them. He delivers them out of the slavery and starts bringing them up out of Israel through Palestine. And they stop at sort of the Palestinian-Israeli border, where it is now today, at Mount Sinai. And they stop there, and that's where we pick up here. And if you're curious about that, how that process happens, you know, we can meet or talk, or you can read Exodus, um, Exodus chapters 3 through 14. But what's really important here, what I want you to see here, is that... In the story, where we're picking up is that God has rescued his people from slavery. God has rescued his people out of slavery. He has delivered them. He has redeemed them. That's the word that is often used in, across the Bible to speak about what has happened here, is that God is delivering his people out of slavery. And here's, here's where it gets interesting. There's actually there's a deeper liberation that is also happening here. There's a deeper liberation that's happening here. And it points to a spiritual reality that happens later on in the rest of Scripture. And this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a significant spiritual point here. So, yes, a real Israelite people have been freed out of slavery. But it points to a greater redemption as this, that all human beings are enslaved to sin. 
All human beings are enslaved to sin, that it extends beyond just ethnic Israel, and that it actually encompasses all humanity. And other parts of the Bible say that, like Israel, all humans are enslaved to sin. Romans 6, which is another book of the Bible, talks about this, and it talks about humans as slaves to sin and slaves to impurity and unrighteousness. Now, what does that mean? That's, that's weird language for our day. It means this. It means that you and I can't not sin. That we can't not sin. That sinning, violating God, hurting others, breaking other people in our world around us, it's natural to who we are. And just like a, a slave can't be free from their oppressor, so you and I in our natural state can't be free from sin. We are slaves to sin. Now, some of you may chafe at that, right? That's kind of a, it's a, it's a weird thing to say that we're slaves to sin. Maybe some of you think, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not perfect. Yeah, there, I need to change this about my life. There's, there's this thing or maybe that thing that I'm not great at. I could improve. But I don't know if I would describe myself as a slave to sin. That seems a bit intense, heavy-handed. Um, and, I, and I think I can prove that we are actually slaves to, my, to, to sin, and I want to do it this way. So I just finished reading a book called Into Thin Air. I'm a big climber, um, and I, I love climbing, all kinds of climbing. And so there's a book that is um, written about a, a climbing expedition of, up Mount Everest in 1996. And so it's talking about the, 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 the climbing expedition. I'm, not, I'm going to give it away, but he gives it away in the book at the beginning, so I'm not giving much away. Um, and it's 1996, y'all. Like, <laughs> it's time. Um, he, he, so 11 people start climbing the mountain and half of them die um, from exposure or falling. Or, it's just a disaster. A lot of people die in the climb. Um, and they know, that cl- they, know a gr- they know that climbing Everest is, is dangerous. They know that they have a high chance of dying. And yet, ele- you know, they, they have a 50% chance of dying and yet they sink $100,000 or more into climbing Mount Everest. They know that once they enter the death zone, which is the altitude above 25,000 feet, their brains start, like literally their brains start dying in their skull. Like your cells start breaking down. They know that their, fra- their flesh is literally freezing off their bodies. Like they'll watch frostbite just kind of chip away at their hand while they're climbing this mountain. And yet, even knowing that it's killing them, they don't stop climbing. They can't stop climbing, knowing that it's doing great harm to them. They've committed too much. They've committed, they're so sunk into this compulsive, consuming desire to climb a mountain that even though they, they're watching it kill them and kill their friends, they don't stop. That's how sin is for us. Just like they were slaves to climbing this mountain, knowing that it was going to kill them, that's how we are. We know that sin is dangerous and brutal to our souls and to our communities, and yet we can't stop doing it. We are enslaved to our desires. How many of you know that there is something in your life that is unhealthy, that you know that you, have to, you should need to stop doing, and yet you can't stop doing it? You find yourself still, you're like, I, 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 I can't keep doing this. It's killing me. It's killing my relationships. And I can't stop doing it. 
That is an indication of our enslavement to sin. If I'm honest, I can think of a lot of things in my own life. I'm sure you can for yours, like compulsive eating. We all do it at times. Arguing with family, gossiping about friends with friends, pornography use, just plain old selfishness. A judgmental attitude towards those who are just even slightly different from us in terms of how they dress, ethnicity, major. We all have these things where we're like, eh, I shouldn't be doing this, and I do it. These are not just compulsive behaviors that we can explain away through psychology. The Bible tells us that at the root of these things is sin, and it is in our enslavement to sin. But here's the good news. That just as God rescues Israel 3,500 years ago out of their enslavement to Egypt, He rescues us out of our enslavement to sin. Listen to Romans 6 here. Romans 6 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standards of teaching that, to which you were commuted, committed and have been set free from sin. And have been set free from sin. So God, just as He rescues Israel out of their enslavement to Egypt, He rescues us out of our compulsive enslavement to sin. How does He do that? How does God rescue us? He does it through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God and man, takes the punishment for the sin that we deserve and gives us His perfect record. Two things happen with the person of Jesus Christ. First, He takes on himself the penalty that was supposed to go to us. So here we are, enslaved to our sin, doing what we can't do, and we know that we we need to be punished for it, and yet Christ comes and says, I'll take all of it. I will take all of the punishment that they deserve on myself. But that's not enough, because then we would just be left with like nothing. No, Christ comes and says, in all of my perfection as God himself, I want it to go to them. It goes to them. We call this in theology, we call it imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, imputed means it comes from outside of us. That all we bring into the equation is our sin. All that we bring into the equation is our compulsive desire to kill ourselves, in effect, and kill everything around us. And righteousness means the perfect freedom and obedience before God. So imputed righteousness is Jesus' perfect obedience applied towards us when all we deserved was to wallow in our slavery. And we all do it. And yet, here's here's God coming and rescuing us out of it. Now, how how do we get that rescue? We simply trust in who Jesus is and what He has done. That He has done just that. Rescued us rescued us from our compulsive enslavement to sin. We are addicted and, addicted and enslaved to sin, and we can't stop, and yet God comes and delivers us out of it. Now, I want to pause for a quick application for us, because some of us here, some of us here are Christians, and um, I know that for me, even this week, there are places and times where I'm haunted by the sin that I have done this week. I'm haunted by the things that I have done. I look at my life and I say, man, I hurt my wife this week. Man, I hurt a student. Man, I hurt someone around me. Man, I abused the earth. And I beat myself up over it. 
Now here's the good news that you need in that. It's that God has delivered you out of that. God has rescued you from that sin when you believe in Jesus Christ. Spiritually, you are like Israel standing on Mount Sinai and God says, I paraphrase here from verse, um, from verse 4, He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to your sin, how I bore on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself through Jesus' perfect death. So this week, don't beat yourself up over the sin you have done. Don't beat yourself up. You are, by faith in Jesus, have been brought out of slavery into sin and are now, what does it say here? A treasured possession. So when we sin, don't dwell on it like, oh, I'm the worst. No, say, Lord, I sinned again. Forgive me and move on. Move on. Receive the forgiveness that God has given you and move on in another shot towards holiness towards obedience remember paul's words he says but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of god the fruit you get leads to sanctification or an improvement in a holier life so that's the first thing that we see in this story that god rescues his people from slavery first he rescues his people out of egypt but there's actually more happening here that god rescues all people, not just the Israelites, from spiritual slavery. Now, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? That brings us to the second part of what we're looking at. In verse 4, 1 through 4, we see the redemption. We see God bringing his people out of slavery. Now, what does that actually mean? That's where we get to verse 5 and 6. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. I'm going to read it again. It says, Now, therefore, Or, in light of what I've just said, in light of your deliverance, in light of your being saved, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, pay attention to this, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he says here that I've, I've rescued you out of slavery, and now... He says, now here's your identity as the rescued and redeemed people of God. Well, what does he say about them? Verse 6, he says, they're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a ton. There's a lot there, but I want to unpack it really quickly. So first, kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. What do priests do? What do priests do? Priests are basically an intermediary or a go-between between the divine and the undivine, right? They go between, they intercede between the divine and whatever else is not divine. They're kind of like a translator, right? They interact with both sides. They're going back and forth between them. So here, God is calling Israel. He says, you are a kingdom of priests, which means that as a nation, they are to intercede or go between God and what? The rest of the world. He says, you are a kingdom of priests between the rest of the world. You are to be the intercessor, the intermediary people, my distinct people for the rest of the world. Well, how are they supposed to do that? He says, and a holy nation. Now, what does that mean? It means that through their holiness, through their holiness, and what's holiness? Holiness is basically obedience to God's law or purity before God. So that through their holiness, by obeying what God's law is, they will show forth to the world 
that following God leads to community and lives of mercy and justice and goodness and love and every kind of flourishing. Every kind of flourishing. So basically what he's saying here is that you all have been saved to be my display people for the rest of the world. I didn't just save you and say, okay, that's done, go go on your way. He says, no, I saved you for a purpose. I saved you to be my banner people, to show you off to the rest of the world what I can do to rescue a people from slavery and what following God can look like and flourishing can look like so that the nations would look at Israel, they would peep in at Israel as they follow the law and go, wow, that's a remarkable, remarkable society. They value justice. They value uprightness. They value the oppressed. They, th- this is a society that works, that is flourishing emotionally, spiritually, socially, economically, politically. In every way, this place is flourishing. Why? And Israel can say, because we have been redeemed by the living God. Now stay with me. Here's where this gets exciting. Here's where this gets exciting. In 1 Peter, which is another book in the, New, in the New Testament, Peter says the exact same thing to you and me. He says the exact same thing. Listen to this. He says here, but you, he's talking to a church, not to ethnic Israel, but he says, but you are what? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my possession. Same language. And he tells us why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see how amazing that is, guys? Do you see that you and I as Christians, we are now called to be that banner people. We are called to be that banner people on our campus to triumph and trumpet out what God has done in our lives to our campus. To say, I have been enslaved to sin, but by God's grace, I have been rescued out of that. And now, by our obedience to God's law, we show forth what flourishing and redemption and justice and everything good is. That's why obedience, that's why law, that's why it's all, that's why Leviticus is so important. It's our response to what God has done for us. Notice here that it doesn't say, that God does not say, if you obey me, then I'll bring you out of slavery. No, first he, ob- he rescues them and then calls them to obedience. That's the exact same with us. He saves us from our sin and then calls us to obedience. The Bible always talks about it that way. They obey God not in order to get salvation, but because they have been saved. We obey God not in, or, not in order to earn His love, but because He has already loved us. We are saved and named as God's treasured possession, loved, cared for, and then we obey. Another way of saying it really succinctly is that obedience follows identity. Obedience follows identity. Now, how does this apply to you in my life? Well, for those of you who are Christians, remember this week that you are a part of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That you are a part of a holy people set apart by God, redeemed from your enslavement to sin for this campus. 
God didn't just randomly save you and say, okay, now your ticket's punched, wait till heaven. No, he saved you for a purpose to be on this campus, New Mexico State University, to be a banner people to what God can and has done in your life. And how do you do that? Through obedience. You're called to a radical obedience to God's law, not so that you're saved, but because you are saved. Because of what God has done, we are called to obey. And that means that we have to pursue holiness in our lives. Sexually, in our language, in the way that we treat others around us, through our self-sacrifice towards other people. So here's my challenge. And it comes from 1 Peter, and it's just after he calls them, literally the next sentence after he calls them a holy nation, he says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, here's the reality. We will all have passions of the flesh this week. That's no, I mean, real talk. That's going to happen. Now, I don't want to guilt you into abstaining from the passions of the flesh. No, why? I say it because you have been saved. You are God's precious, treasured possession. Live like it. I watched this show on Netflix. It's called Seven Days Out. It's a really great show. I really recommend it to you. And um, the, the second episode is about um, 11 Madison Park, which is a restaurant in New York City. It's the best restaurant in the world. At least it was in 2017. I, and it did well in 2018. Um, so really, really top, top quality restaurant, obviously. And so they do this giant remodel of the restaurant. Uh, they strip it down to the studs, basically. And um, they're getting ready to reopen it. And um, five minutes before they're about to reopen it, the restaurateur, the guy who runs the place, um, he's this really dynamic character. He's standing there and he points out the window and there's all these people waiting to come in and they're food critics. And there are all these patrons who are getting ready to pay hundreds of dollars for a meal. And they're basically a bunch of people who are going to come in and judge this place and be like, is it up to snuff? Do they still got it? Are they still the best restaurant in the world? So the pressure's on, right? And uh, he looks at his, at his waiting staff, um, and he says this. He says, <clears throat> I thought this was great. He's, he's waiting for a bunch of people who are going to come in and observe and critique the best restaurant in the world. And he says to them, be excited. This is exciting. Failure is not an option. Be excited. This is exciting. Failure is not an option. Now, what is he saying? In effect, he's saying, be excited. We're the best restaurant in the world. Be excited. That is our identity. We are really good at making really good food. Now, live like it. Go out and serve the best food in the world. Failure is not an option. We, I mean, like he's, he's not like, we're the best restaurant in the world. We can rest on our laurels. Don't worry about it. You guys have a great night. He's like, no, we're the best restaurant in the world. Act like it. Act like it. That's what, that's what is happening here. God is saying, you are my treasured possession. I love you. I have saved you by great cost to Jesus Christ. Now, act like it. Failure is not an option. We are that restaurant staff. We are God's treasured possession. We are a holy nation. Now, live like it. Go out, obey, follow God's law, love those around you. So what do we see in this passage? First, we see that God rescues his people from slavery. He did it 3,500 years ago. He does it today. 
Second, we see that God makes his people to be a banner people in this world. And that happened 3,500 years ago, and it happens today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we can look at your word, see how it convicts us and shapes us. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, we do not deserve it. All we deserve is to wallow in our slavery, and yet you and your great mercy reach down and save us. Father, give us increased faith and trust in what you have done in Jesus Christ, so much so that we actually begin to live like it. May that be true of me. May that be true of our community. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.